I we'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. As we continue our way through Luke's gospel, we see in our passage this evening another fulfillment of what we were told back in, in chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel told Zechariah. And again, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his son would be one who would prepare the way for the Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that coming to fulfillment here in our passage this evening in the ministry of John the Baptist. And furthermore, the, the first few verses of, of this passage, as we will soon see, Luke is, is situating this passage in the context of history. We are told who, who's ruling, we're told who the, the high priest is at this time, and this tells us that Luke wasn't writing a fairy tale. He was doing a legitimate historical account of the life of Christ. So please turn your attention now to the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, big events require preparation. I think we all can think of events in our life in which we were ill-prepared for, 
and events in our life in which we were well prepared for. Big events require preparation. I quite reluctantly uh, played in my high school band growing up. I think it was one of the ways in which my parents wanted me to be a, a well-rounded student. And every year, our school would have an annual event where individuals would either play solos or duos would play duets. And it was my senior year, the spring of my senior year, and I was starting to check out, wanting, wanting to graduate, and a friend of mine, decided, uh, my friend and I, decided to, to play a duet. And we did not put the time in that we needed to. And it, this event, which was before a panel of judges, went absolutely horrendous. I have a faint memory of us not even ending on the same time. Events require preparation. Well, John the Baptist, his whole ministry was a ministry of preparation, preparing a people who are not prepared for the coming of Christ. John was supposed to do what my band instructor didn't do, prepare an ill-prepared people for a momentous event. And for them, it was the earthly ministry of Christ, one of the greatest events in world history. And one aspect of John's ministry was his ministry of baptism. Now, there's lots of debate over the exact meaning of his baptism. And his, his baptism in which he administered is not identical to the baptisms that we've received, New Covenant baptism. In a lot of ways, his baptism was tied up with who he was and his place in God's plan of salvation. You know, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. You know, Matthew 11 tells us that the least of us in the kingdom of God, that is the New Covenant, the least of us are greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Well, John the Baptist belonged to a different order. He was of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Boys and girls, it's like when you're reading a book and you come to the, the last page of a chapter. That's John the Baptist. And you turn the page over and you begin a new chapter. And that new chapter is the chapter that Jesus is instituting, this new covenant era, the last days, as, he, as the New Testament speaks about repeatedly. Well, of course, we don't live in the early first century A.D. We didn't receive the baptism that John administered. We are anticipating, we aren't anticipating the earthly ministry of Christ. So, of course, there are things in our passage that are unique to the original audience. However, even though we don't anticipate the first coming of Christ, his earthly ministry, we are anticipating the second coming of Christ, which is a momentous event, um, an event that we all need to be prepared for. Therefore, John's instruction does indeed have relevance to us, as we too need to be a people prepared for a big event, the event of Christ's second coming. So this evening, I want us to focus on, on, on the fact that the meaning of John's baptisms uh, teaches us three things about how we are to live or how we are to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. And these three things include learning of John's baptisms inform, informs our minds about Jesus, so instructs our head, our mind. John's baptisms also strengthens our faith, so our heart. So it strengthens our faith in Jesus. And then John's baptism energizes our wills for Jesus. So we'll see that 
what we, what we learn in this passage affects our head, our heart, and our hands. So first, let us consider how, how John's baptisms, they inform our minds about Jesus, particularly uh, Jesus' mission. In fact, John's baptisms teach us that Jesus' mission was to bring his people to a new and better promised land. To a new and better promised land. Now, why do I say this? Well, there are two indicators in our text that point us in this direction. And the first of which has to do with the geographical location of where John was administering these baptisms. And that's the Jordan River. Now, if you look in your Bibles at at verse 3 of Luke chapter 3, we read, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then when we go to the parallel account in Matthew 3, in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6, which is narrating uh, the same event, we read, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the Jordan about, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. So Matthew's a little bit more specific in saying that these baptisms were done in the Jordan River. Now, why is this significant? What does the Jordan River have to do with the meaning of John's baptisms? Well, where else did the Jordan River feature prominently? Well, Joshua chapter 3. In Joshua chapter 3, the broader context, let me remind you, Israel's been redeemed out out of slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land. But that entailed a journey. They had to go through the wilderness. And the last step before entrance into this promised land, this promised land which was, which was promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was they had to cross this Jordan River. And Joshua chapter 3 narrates this event where Israel is led by the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant contained God's presence. So in many ways, God was leading his people through these waters in a way that reenacted the Red Sea crossing. They went across this river on dry ground. And they went into this land that was promised to them. Now the Exodus and these post-Exodus events, that shaped the, the, imagina- the, the imagination, the imagery in which Old Testament saints thought of God's salvation. Right, old bondage, slavery in Egypt, that represents our slavery to our sin. God redeems us, leads us to the promised land, leads his people to the promised land. And what does the promised land represent? Well, the promised land points to heaven. Hebrews chapter 11, we read that when Abraham received this promise of the land of Canaan, he realized that a piece of real estate in the Middle East wasn't the ultimate reference of this promise. He realized that this this land pointed to heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem and his heavenly homeland. So the promised land pointed to heaven. You know, in a lot of ways, it's like when you you look at uh, pictures in a travel catalog, like a Costco travel catalog. A picture is not the same thing as going to Europe, going to the Bahamas or wherever. In a similar way, this land of Canaan was a picture. It was a small foretaste of 
what God was ultimately going to give his people. That says John the Baptist is baptizing these individuals in the Jordan River. He's doing this as a means to prepare the people for Christ. And what's Christ going to do? Well, he's the one who's actually going to bring about the reality. He's going to bring his people not to the land of Canaan, but he's going to bring his people to the reality, the new creation. And that's what he does. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit being given to us is the down payment of the new creation, which we are looking forward to fully entering on the last day. So John the Baptist is, is like, you're not, as he's on the banks of the Jordan, he's preparing the people for Christ, who's going to bring his people, lead his people to the new creation. Now you may be thinking, okay, isn't that reading a little bit much into this, this geographical location, this detail that's included in our text? Well, I think our second indicator, I said there's two indicators that lead us in this, this direction. Our second indicator confirmed that we're not reading too much into this geographical location. And the second indicator comes from verses 4 and 5. Here Luke tells us that John's baptism is in fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you look in your, in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5, we read, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. As I mentioned, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were shaped by the Exodus. That was how they imagined God's salvation. And so, in Isaiah 40, God's people are in exile. They're in Babylon. Isaiah is, is describing, prophesying about coming salvation, future salvation from God. And what is the language and the imagery that Isaiah uses? The exodus. The exodus. The imagery is, 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 is this idea of God preparing a way, leveling all places, preparing a way, and leading God's people back into the land. Now, yes, Israel does return to the land, but is that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 40? God's people just returning back to the land of Canaan. No, that's why it's quoted here in fulfillment of John's ministry. It's referring to what Christ is going to be doing as he will lead his people in this new and better exodus. Not back to a piece of real estate, but he's going to bring about the reality, the new creation. New creation that I said is sealed upon our hearts. Christ purchased it, and we have the down payment through the Spirit, and we will one day fully enter into it on the last day. John is essentially saying here, remember, remember what happened to your forefathers on these banks ages ago. It was that last step before they entered into the promised land. Similar way, this baptism in the Jordan River is, is meant to inform, inform them 
and foremost, that Jesus is about to bring about this, this everlasting salvation, this new creation. And of course, the people in John's day just kind of threw him for a loop. Right? They were expecting Jesus to come in a way that very literally renewed the Davidic kingship, set up a kingdom on earth like that which existed under David and Solomon that would have earthly dominance over their, their earthly enemies. But that wasn't Jesus' mission. He was coming to do something far, far greater. He was coming to bring about the reality of what all those types and shadows pointed to. Right, the new creation. I think we as a church, we are starting to, to come to terms with the fact that the church in, 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 in our country, in America, is no longer a culturally dominant institution. In a lot of ways, it's marginalized. It's irrelevant. At times we um, may not feel the explicit persecution as brothers and sisters in other areas, but we're definitely on the fringes. And this, in a lot of ways, is precisely the nature of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was not a, a culturally dominant institution. I think sometimes we can be tempted in a way that's similar to the people in John's day. We expect Jesus' mission to be very earthly. We want Jesus to bring about our earthly homeland. Almost as if we want, we want America to be Christian again. As if, as if Christ promised that. We have to remember that Christ never promised us an earthly homeland. Christ never promised us an earthly, powerful institution in the church. What he came, was, what he came to give us was much, much greater. An everlasting inheritance, a new creation. Thus, I think this reorientates our expectations. We are just pilgrims. We are just exiles. We are passing through. This is not our homeland. As Hebrews 13, 14 says, we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. That is our identity. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in a movement, a party, anything that exists in this, this earthly, present evil age. So when there's such upheaval, chaos, uncertainty that, that presently exists in our own society, I think it's a good test for us. Is, where is our hope? Is it in the forces, institutions of this present evil age? Or is our ultimate hope in Christ who has brought us this new and better promised land, the new creation? Therefore, learning of John's baptism it informs our minds about the true nature of Jesus' mission. This helps cultivate hope, reorientates our expectations as we prepare for that momentous event of the second coming of Christ. But we also see that, that John's baptisms uh, strengthen our faith in Christ. Uh, strengthens our faith in Christ. Don't worry, these last two points are, um, are not nearly as long as that first one. But John's baptism strengthens our faith in Christ. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If we just were told that Jesus' mission is going to be, in the context of, of Luke 3, to bring his people to this new creation, it would make sense that we are then called to put faith in this Christ. Now, in verses 7 through 14, 
you'll see that this passage is primarily a call to repentance, a call to obedience. But I believe that behind this, this explicit call to repentance is also a call to faith. Now look with me at verse 8. Verse 8 um, John says this. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? This is a baptism of repentance. So he says, bear fruits. Now this leads us to an interesting question. If we're called to bear fruits, how can we bear fruit? Well, Jesus in John 15 also calls his disciples to bear fruit. But he says, the only way in which you will bear fruit is by abiding in me, the vine. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own. If you sever it from its life source, the trunk, it's not going to bear fruit. Similar way, we only will bear fruit when we're attached to the vine, that is to Christ himself. And that's why Jesus calls us to abide in him. To abide in him. And, And what does it mean to abide? Well, it means to place our faith in him. Therefore, in order to bear fruit, we first need to have faith. Our faith connects us to the life source, which allows us to bear fruit. Furthermore, in verse, as we continue on in verse 8, uh, John continues and he says to his present audience, he says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's telling them, don't don't trust in your family lineage. Don't trust in who your father was, who your mother was, who your great-grandfather was. Don't don't trust in the fact that you can trace your earthly descent all the way back to Abraham. It's not as if that makes you somehow more righteous than than a Gentile who can't. He says, "That that doesn't make you true children of Abraham. This then leads us to the question, well, what is it that makes us the true offspring of Abraham? That is, part of God's saving covenant community. Well, Paul in Galatians 3, 29, answers this very question. He says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Faith in Christ is what attaches you to the lineage of Abraham, attaches you to the the saving community of God. Therefore, even here, I believe there's an implicit call to faith. So before we can, we can turn to, to, to John's call to repentance, we, we need to recognize that behind it is a call to faith. Just as John's hear, hearers were tempted to trust in themselves, their lineage, uh, their works of piety, so too we, as, as 21st century Christians, can be tempted to trust in, in ourselves, trust that we came from the right family, boys and girls. It's not your parents' sa- faith that saves you. We all are called to profess faith. Going to church, reading our Bibles, doing various acts of of good works or piety, these don't equal salvation. We need to believe. We need to believe. We need to believe in the one who has brought that new and better promised land. Furthermore, as I uh, recently said, in order to bear fruit, in order to actually lead that life of repentance, we need to be connected to the life source of Jesus Christ, which comes through faith. So Christ is the power supplier to be able to to live that life of obedience or sanctification. 
going back to verse 7, we see that John says that God's wrath is coming. You know, we are in, a, the time clock is, click, is ticking. We see God's common grace all around us. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Every time you see the sun rise, you know God is in the mission of saving his people as not all the elect have been brought in. But that won't continue forever. And therefore, that call to believe needs to be uh, declared and proclaimed. And for those of us who have faith, I think this strengthens our faith. This reminds us that we continually, throughout our Christian life, need to look back to Christ, who gives us that hope of a new creation. We look back to Christ, who is that power supplier in our life of obedience and sanctification. This then leads us to uh, my third and final point, as we learn that John's baptisms energizes our wills for Jesus. It energizes our wills for Jesus. Again, I think this makes sense. If, if we truly recognize the greatness of what we have received and what Jesus has done to bring about this everlasting salvation, new creation, this hope that transcends our life in this world, how can we not respond with grateful obedience? Right, boys and girls, when you receive a great, great gift, what is your initial reaction? It's one of gratitude. So too, we should be filled with gratitude, a gratitude that, that looks like, that manifests itself in obedience. Well, again, I'd like to, to consider on verse 8, which we already um, looked at briefly, where, where John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is very broad. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. But John goes on and he gets more specific. What does this look like? Well, in verse 10, the crowds respond and, and really say this, this very question. They say, well, well what shall we do? We're, we're called to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Well, what shall we do? What does this look like? And John says, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, we, again, I think we have to ask ourselves, is John saying that, you know, it's sinful? If you have two shirts in your closet, you have to get rid of that second one. No, that's not what John's saying. We have to ask ourselves, what's that principle which lies behind this command? And the principle is that we are to love our neighbor, the second table of the law. Or as, as Paul says in, in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Like, that's the principle here, love for neighbor. And then we see John apply this principle even more specifically to individuals. So in verses 12 through 13, we read that tax collectors and soldiers came up to them. So we first read, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then in verse 14, we read that soldiers asked him, what, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. Notice that he, he took this principle Love for neighbor, which is quite broad. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Be generous. Think about the interests of others. And he applies it to the very specific temptations that tax collectors would have experienced or soldiers would have experienced. 
I think we, we all have our own particular callings, vocations in life. As moms, dads, fathers, mothers, as um, sons, daughters, students, employees, employers, and each one of these vocations, callings, come with their own particular set of temptations, temptations towards corruption, selfishness, considering our own interests above that of those around us. And I think what, Paul, what John would have us, have us do this evening is, is consider. Don't just be content with the generality of bare fruits in keeping with repentance. No, think about what that looks like in your own specific callings, vocations in life. Right, the tax collectors, they had their own specific temptations to corruption, of taking more than what they should have exacted and pocketing the rest. So, so what, what particular temptations exist in your life, in your callings? What ways are you tempted to be selfish? Maybe when no one's watching, maybe when everyone else is doing the same thing. John would call us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the specifics of our vocations and callings. Thus, you can see that this baptism of repentance teaches us that our wills are to be energized. That is, we are to bear fruit. Well, beloved in the Lord, big events require preparation. The ministry of John prepared the people for one of the biggest events in history, the earthly ministry of Christ. As we seek to be prepared, not for the first coming of Christ, but that second coming of Christ, a momentous event itself, this text instructs our mind, our hearts, our hands, to embrace Christ in faith, hope, and love. Hope, as we recognize that Christ has indeed brought about a new and better promised land. Faith in the one who has brought us this new and better promised land and love for those around us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have indeed given us a hope that transcends our circumstances in this world, transcends what's going on on the, on the front page of the newspaper. We thank you that we are indeed pilgrims. We know that we wouldn't want this earth to be our homeland. Please cultivate in us this hope of who we truly are, that we are citizens of the new creation. And come, O oh Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.